reading from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. For this very reason, make effort to supplement your faith with goodness, goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The person who lacks these things is blind and short-sighted and has forgotten the cleansing from his past sins. Therefore, brothers, make every effort to confirm your calling and election, because if you do these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly supplied to you. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for your holy word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask you that you would help us to hunger and thirst rightly and that we would be very receptive at this time. We thank you for our teacher whom we love. We ask that you would work in him and through him. We ask that you would visit us at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Unless you've missed all of the Summer Olympics in the last 16 years, you'll recognize this as a photo of Michael Phelps muscling his way through the men's 200-meter butterfly in flawless form, of course. Phelps is the most medaled Olympian in history, with 23 gold medals and 28 medals overall. There's a copy of this same photo circulating on Facebook that my son showed me with the caption, if you were stranded on an island and could have three things, what would they be? Answer, Michael Phelps, a saddle, and a stick with a gold medal tied to the end of it. But of course, if you read anything about the life of Michael Phelps, you'll realize that even if you took the reward of Olympic legend status out of the mix, this guy was born to swim. This, uh, I want to read you one biographer's explanation of how uniquely Phelps's physique is suited to swimming. His long torso offers low drag. His arms span six feet seven inches, disproportionate to his height of six feet four inches, and act as long propulsive paddles. His relatively short legs lower or reduce drag. His size 14 feet provide the effect of flippers. And his hypermobile ankles can extend beyond the point of a ballet dancer, enabling him to whip his feet as if they were fins for maximum thrusts through the water. This guy was born to swim. So here's a question. What do you think it would take to make Michael Phelps swim badly? And I'm not talking about 30 years from now when he's my age. I'm talking about now. He has all the equipment. He has all the experience and all the know-how to swim better and faster than pretty much anyone else on the face of the earth. So what would it take 
to get someone so exceptionally equipped and capable for swimming to swim badly? Well, it would take something that seriously undermines all that equipment, all that experience, and all that capability. In the verses we're considering this morning, Peter's appeal to us who belong to Jesus Christ by faith is all about us bearing out, putting on display the divine nature of which he told us in the last passage we have become partakers. Peter already told us that God has granted us everything, absolutely everything that is necessary for real life and real godliness. Nobody, beloved, could possibly be better equipped for an assignment than you and I are for our assignment from God. Not even Michael Phelps. With that certainty as the basis, Peter now exhorts us to put our entire selves into being bearers of the same divine nature of which God has made us sharers. To put real godliness into practice. And at the end of this passage, Peter encourages us to diligently guard against a kind of forgetfulness that would undermine that display of God's character. If we practice vigilance, the vigilance to which he calls us, he assures us that we will continue to be useful and fruitful for our Savior and Master until He welcomes us into His glorious kingdom. In verses 5-7, through Peter calls us to diligently bear out what we have come to partake of. To diligently put into actual practice several characteristics of godliness. He begins his exhortation to us here as believers in verse 5, saying, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with goodness. Now the phrase, for this very reason, points back to the marvelous equipping that he's been talking about in the previous verses. He just said, we've been given everything that we need for life and godliness. For this reason, because you have all of that equipment from God, practice godliness. He uses the same word here for goodness that he used just a couple of verses earlier of God when he spoke of God's own glory and goodness by which he called us. The goodness that he is exhorting us to put into practice is the goodness inherent in the character of God himself. His goodness. Because God has made us sharers in his divine nature, and because that divine nature includes the goodness, the moral perfection of God, we are therefore to actually put his goodness on display in our daily lives. And there's nothing to stop us from doing that. Now you may be thinking, okay, Tom, I got it. This is not a complicated proposition. Our goodness is his goodness. But this is one of the most critical truths about the Christian life that you and I will ever know. And it's a truth that our flesh and our enemy would love to get us 
to set aside in favor of self-reliance. None of the qualities of godliness that Peter calls us here to put into practice day by day come from us. They all come from God. And you know what that makes us? Dependent. It makes us dependent. That's why faith is the indispensable starting point for Peter's exhortation to us here in verses 5-7. through Faith is the one thing here that's assumed to be already in place and upon which all the rest is built. The New American Standard says, applying all diligence in your faith supply goodness. Faith is the response of dependent people. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. That's because all of the characteristics of godliness that God delights to see manifested in us come from Him, not from us. If we are not steadfastly trusting in and depending upon the one source of all godliness, we won't have any godliness to bear to this lost world. It won't happen. The difference between failing in the Christian life because we're walking in the, by the flesh and succeeding in the Christian life because we're walking by the Spirit is faith. Constant, utter dependence upon and trust in God because He's the one and only source of all godliness. Again, everything Peter says here Everything he exhorts us to do is built upon the foundation of faith. Along with goodness, what are those things that Peter calls us here to build upon that foundation? Well, there's knowledge. Now, this is a a less intensive word for knowledge than the one that Peter used in the earlier verses to describe our intimate, personal knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord, through which God has given us every good thing. I believe the knowledge that Peter's talking about here in verse 6 is knowledge about God that comes from knowing His Word. If you know what the Gnostic heresy was about, and we talked about it some last week, you'll understand that that kind of a straightforward approach to how we come to know God, it, it was a big deal because it flew in the face of that heresy. As we saw last time, Peter makes a very big issue in this letter of the inviolable connection between knowing God's Word and knowing God Himself. You can't have the second without the first. Goodness, knowledge, and then self-control. Self-control is just what it sounds like. It's thoughts, words, and behavior that are diligently submitted to God rather than given over to outside influences and temptations. Then, endurance or perseverance. I think the reason Michael Phelps got his gold in the 200-meter butterfly and had to settle for a silver in the 100-meter is because endurance is where he beats all the rest. This is very straightforward. The Bible has a lot to say about it. The Christian life, guys, is not a sprint. 
The Christian life is a marathon. Perseverance is indispensable to living out the character of our Savior and Master in the midst of constant resistance from the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then godliness. Now that is used also in in First Peter as sort of in Second Peter as a, an umbrella term that covers all of these attributes. But here I believe he's talking about a God-centered lifestyle versus a self-centered worldly lifestyle. He's talking about genuine piety. Godliness is what self-control looks like when God is in charge of our hearts. Then, brotherly affection. It's the word Philadelphia, the Greek word. Throughout the New Testament epistles, this word refers to the love that a child of God has for his brothers and sisters in Christ. It's our godly affection for the people of God that works itself out in loving action toward one another. And then finally, agape, selfless love. This is the self-denying love that God has lavished upon us in Jesus Christ so that we may then lavish it upon others in His name. It's love devoted to the well-being even of the most unlovely. This is the highest and most powerfully transforming of all godly virtues. Now this list of characteristics of godly living overlaps with other similar lists in other places in the New Testament, such as Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But none of those lists is a checklist. There's no such thing as checklist godliness where we can say, okay, if I do these six things, I'm good. We're never going to reduce the character of God to a checklist. And that's why the lists are not the same from one passage to the next. And that doesn't mean that they're not valuable to us. They are certainly valuable. We, we need to think hard about every one of the attributes of godliness that's set before us in the Bible. But what it means is that such lists do not and cannot possibly contain our whole job description as Christ followers because our calling is to partake in and to show off a person, not a set of behaviors. That means our foremost pursuit must be to behold and know and listen to and fellowship with and follow that person. Now, I believe that there's good reason that Peter words verse 8 in the rather curious way that he does. He could have said in verse 8, if these qualities of godliness that I've just given to you are yours and are increasing, you will be useful and fruitful. But instead, he words the outcome in the negative. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe he words it that way in order to draw our attention to this simple reality. The fruitful, useful Christian life is the normal Christian life. 
It's not that it's normal because it's easy. Certainly not. It's normal because it's in keeping with our new nature. The expected fruit of our new redeemed nature as restored image bearers of God who personally know Jesus Christ is Christ-like behavior. It's Christ showing Himself off to others through us. That's why God saved us and left us here. In Titus 2.14, Paul says that Jesus gave Himself for us so that in order that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. A people zealous to do good. In Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, very familiar passage, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. And then immediately it says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God saved us, By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, purely as a gift that we did not deserve and could not earn. But He saved us for a purpose. He saved us in order that we will carry on with the work that Jesus saved us to do. Godly behavior flows from and displays the divine nature of which God has So graciously made us partakers. And that fruit, that fruit that is real Christ-likeness, is exceedingly, exceedingly useful in the hands of God. He does miraculous things through that fruit. He populates His coming kingdom through that fruit. He gives the world a preview of that kingdom through that fruit. What is that fruit? It's His nature played out, displayed in us and through us. Beloved, that's the normal Christian life. Bearing out God's character is as intrinsic, as irresistible for the child of God as swimming is for Michael Phelps. Sharers in God's character bear out God's character. That's what makes us powerfully and eternally useful to God. The Christian life is not about personal holiness as an end in itself. It's about personal holiness put to work to expand the kingdom of our glorious Savior. To use J.I. Packer's analogy, God made us to be runners, not balconeers who sit in the grandstands watching all the action. Because good works are the normal, natural outworking of the divine nature, nature, natural, within us, that means that in order for us who have become sharers in the divine nature to be useless and unfruitful, something has to seriously mess with God's design. That's where verses 9 through 11 come in. Peter presents here a problem. 
A problem that will short-circuit our usefulness to God if we don't deal with it on God's terms. And then he tells us how to keep that problem at bay so that these very characteristics of godliness will persist and increase in us and we will grow up in the true grace of God, which is his whole purpose for this letter. The second major point and last major point here is how sharers avoid becoming spectators. In verse 9, Peter gives us a critically important diagnosis for the child of God who is doing poorly at putting God's divine nature on display. He explains that if a Christian lacks the qualities of godliness that he just laid out for us, it is because he has lost sight of what God did for him in Jesus Christ. He has forgotten that God cleansed him from his sins. The problem isn't with his identity. The problem is with his memory and his vision. The word for short-sighted in verse 9 is the Greek word from which we get myopic. Peter says that the spiritual nearsightedness that this person is facing has resulted because he has forgotten something very important. If you look at the verb tenses in verse 9, the forgetting precedes the myopia, the nearsightedness. The believer in question is presently blind or short-sighted because he has forgotten the purification from his former sins. He has allowed something very, very important to slip so far away from his memory, to drift so far from his awareness that he can barely see it anymore. And that something is God's gracious gift of purification from his sins. I believe the reason that Peter speaks here of his past sins is because He's saying there was a time when this believer knew full well that God had cleansed him, but now in the midst of his present sins, he's not so sure. He no longer displays the character of the one who purified him from sin because he has ceased to be convinced that that purification even applies to him. If you lose sight of the redeeming grace of God toward you in Jesus Christ, you will do a lousy job of putting on godliness. The cure for this spiritual amnesia and nearsightedness, I believe, is in the next verse, verse 10. Therefore, brothers, brethren, Make every effort to confirm your calling and election because if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now, some of you may disagree with me on this next point, and if so, that's perfectly fine as long as the disagreement drives us all back to Scripture. I don't believe that Peter is talking here about smoking out unbelievers who are mixed in with the true flock of God. I don't believe he's saying... You guys need to figure out if you're really the children of God or if you're fake. As I attempted to point out last week from the first four verses of this chapter, 
Peter couldn't possibly have been more clear about the fact that he's writing this letter to real Christians, to those who, he says, have received a like precious faith to his own. He's writing to real believers so that we will stand firm in the true grace of God and grow up in that true grace of God. Now certainly there were phony Christians in the mix. Probably in every Christian community that received these letters. But that's not who he's talking to. He tells us over and over who he's talking to. He starts verse 10 with the words, Therefore, brethren, brothers, my brothers and sisters in Christ. So what does Peter mean when he commands his fellow saints to be all the more diligent to confirm his calling and choosing of you. Well, I think we'd all agree he's not saying that we do something that actually determines whether God called and chose us. God's choosing of His elect happened before the foundation of the world. So you and I don't have anything to do with it. Peter is talking about our own confidence that we have been called and chosen of God, the very theme of this morning's worship that was so beautifully addressed. He's talking about our assurance of our salvation. The word therefore points to what he just said in verse 9, that the one who is doing poorly at displaying godly character is blind or short-sighted having forgotten his purification from sin. That's the problem. Now he's explaining the cure, or better, the vaccine. The way to avoid that problem. He's saying, my brothers and sisters in Christ, the way to avoid becoming like that Christian I just described, to avoid forgetting, losing sight of the cleanness that you enjoy as one called and chosen and purified by God is to hold fast, to hold fast to the same precious and magnificent promises that I've just been talking about in the first verses of this letter. The vaccine is to remember that God, the one who called us by His own glory and goodness, called you and made you a partaker of His own divine nature through the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. I believe he's saying, brethren, be strong in your confidence, your assurance that God has called you and chosen you. Because if you forget who you are, you're going to be crippled in the Christian life instead of useful and fruitful for Christ. I believe the Apostle Paul makes much the same appeal in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me take the verses I just read a moment ago from Ephesians 2 verses 8, 8 through 10 and put them together with the verses that immediately follow in 11 through 13. And as I do, listen for the connection between God's call to us to do good works and His call to us to remember whose we now are. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one has cause to boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember. See, he says, he says, God called us to do good works. He saved us by His grace. He called us to do good works. Therefore, remember that formerly you, you Gentiles, were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. He's saying since God saved you by His grace to do His good works through you, there's something very, very important for you to remember. Because if you forget it, if you forget it, you will fail to do those good works. Here's what you need to remember. Remember who you used to be and remember whose you now are. And then he says, and remember what it costs God to make that happen. And that is the precious blood of Christ. Peter talked about that same precious blood in 1 Peter chapter 2. I believe Peter is saying the same thing here that Paul is saying in Ephesians. When you put verses 9 and 10 of 2 Peter 1, together with the context of all the verses that came just before that, before those, here's what I believe you see as Peter's very strong appeal. If a Christian is not showing off God's character, well, it isn't because God hasn't given him everything that he needs to do so. God has given him absolutely everything that he needs to do so. He's given, he's granted those gifts to all of his children. No, it's because his sight has become impaired. And the reason he's not seeing so well is because he's forgotten what's true of him in Christ. That the God who called and chose him before the foundations of the world cleansed him from his sins in order to show himself off through his purified vessel. That brother's confidence in the grace of God, that that grace applies to him personally, has fallen by the wayside. He has lost sight of that amazing grace, and that's why God's character isn't very visible in him. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be very careful. Be very, very diligent to build up, to fortify your confidence regarding God's calling and choosing of you. Don't forget what's true of everyone who believes in and personally knows Jesus Christ. Now, please don't get me wrong. The thought of giving false assurance to phony Christians should be anathema to every one of us. But that's not what this passage is about. You may strongly disagree with me, but I'm convinced that Peter's talking to the real people of God, which means most of us, I think, in this room. And I don't want us to miss this critically important exhortation. I believe this is Peter's call 
to real Christians to firm up our confidence in that which Peter already declared to be established regarding God's calling and choosing of us. Now, if you look at how Peter uses this very same word for make strong, make strong or sure, just a little later in the same chapter, I believe it bears out what I'm talking about here. In verses 16 to 21 of the same chapter, 2 Peter 1, and again in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Peter defends the very firm biblical footing of all that he is seeking to sear into the minds and hearts and memories of the saints of God through his two letters to the churches. He explains in chapter 1, verses 16 and following, that the things that he and the other apostles had been proclaiming to the churches concerning the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ were not cleverly devised tales. They weren't making this stuff up. And then to defend that assertion, Peter points to his own personal witness of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ and of hearing with his own ears the Father's declaration from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. On the basis of his own eyewitness of that glorious event, Peter says this in verse 19. He says, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. The word for sure or strong in that verse is the same word he used in verse 10 where he said, brothers, be all the more diligent to make sure His calling and choosing of you. So here's a question. Is Peter saying in the end of this chapter that before the disciples personally witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus, the word of the Old Testament prophets concerning Jesus was somehow not credible or not already established as true? If that's what he's saying, then Peter kind of jumped the gun a week or so before the transfiguration when he declared Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that the disciples' own eyewitness of the transfiguration fortified, strengthened the already established, already compelling witness of the prophets concerning Jesus. It strengthened the entire body of testimony affirming Jesus as the promised Messiah. Testimony that was already exceedingly, exceedingly strong. You with me? I believe Peter's using the same word and making the same kind of appeal in verse 10 regarding our confidence in our own standing before God as His chosen and elect people. He's not saying, make certain that which is uncertain. He's saying, fortify, strengthen your certainty regarding that which God Himself declares to be true of all who share a like precious faith in Jesus Christ. Hold fast to the certainty that you are the called and chosen of God because if you don't, you're going to be useless. Beloved, that certainty, that blessed assurance is the God-given birthright of every believer in Jesus 
Christ. The Christian who lives in doubt of his eternally righteous standing in the eyes of God, who lacks that firm assurance, will do poorly at displaying the character of God. A real child of God who harbors serious doubts about his own identity as a child of God will not be joyfully proclaiming the true grace of God in Jesus Christ and will not be showing off the character of his Savior. He'll be stumbling around like a blind man devoid of gratitude or joy, useless and unfruitful for Christ. I know Christians like that, and I believe I will see them in heaven. But they are so crippled by their doubt that they're useless. R.C. Sproul, I highly recommend this, another one I highly recommend, but this is a great commentary on First and Second Peter. Sproul, writing about the same passage, puts it this way. He says, Peter is saying... If you want to have a fruitful Christian life, if you want to grow in grace, if you want to move forward in your sanctification, then make sure of your election early in your Christian walk. Those who are sure with the sound reasons of assurance are unlike those who were tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Assurance keeps us from being double-minded people who are up one day and down the next. Those with assurance know that their destiny has been settled from before the foundation of the world. And then he says, the irony, the irony is that the more sure you are, the more likely you are to bear fruit in abundance. End quote. And the reason that's ironic is because we so tend to think that it works the other way around. We think that it's uncertainty that ensures that we will get diligent about bearing fruit. That's not how godliness works. Godliness proceeds from constant dependence on the God that we know has saved us. Godliness is a labor of love directed toward the one who loved us to the point of death on the cross to make us His own. It's one thing to say that many Christians struggle at times over assurance of their salvation. But beloved, it's another thing to say that they should. It's another thing altogether to say that that doubt is constructive rather than destructive. Some of you may be ready to lynch me at this point. But please permit me to clarify a couple of things that might even pleasantly surprise you. First, I am convinced from Scripture that there is no such thing as an unchanged or unchanging Christian. Some Christians may be like the babes in Christ whom Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 3 that he says are walking like mere men. Their stunted spiritual growth may reveal precious little evidence of their identity as children of God to the rest of us. 
But every true believer in Jesus Christ is a new creature in Christ. And God is at work in that new creature both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Perhaps for some, the most visible evidence of that divine sanctifying work may be an abundance of the sorrowful discipline of the Lord in their lives. The change that God is bringing about in some of His children may be their increasing misery because of their rebellious attachment to the things of this world. The most miserable people on this earth are rebellious Christians. Amos 3.2, God said to Israel, You only have I chosen out of all the peoples of the earth, therefore I will punish all your iniquities. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. There's no such thing as an unchanged or unchanging Christian. And beloved, there is no such thing as a believer in Christ who has no love for Christ and no love for the people of God. There is no such thing. John's first epistle could not be more forceful on that point. As R.C. Sproul again puts it, the natural person, the unregenerate, never has an ounce of affection for God in his heart. And he's talking about real affection for the real God. It is impossible, he says, to have any love for Christ unless first the Holy Spirit has changed the disposition of your soul. Because by nature... Not only do we not love Him, but we cannot love Him. Only if we are born of the Spirit is the love for the biblical Christ awakened in us. And then Sproul even goes so far as to say, if you have the slightest true affection for Jesus, your assurance is solid. End quote. Another thing I would like to make sure that I'm clear about is I do believe that good works fortify assurance. But that is not the same thing as saying that a believer's assurance that he has been called and chosen by God is based on his good works. There certainly should be, and by God's grace I believe there are visible evidences of my identity as a child of God. Visible to me and I hope visible to others. But beloved, the ground, (laughs) the sure and certain foundation of my assurance is and will always be the trustworthiness of Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord. I know whom I have believed. The more I see of God's character worked out in my actual behavior, the more visible evidence I have of His presence at work in me and through me. Certainly that fortifies my confidence that I am His. It doesn't determine that confidence. It strengthens that confidence. There's a difference. And this is a two-way street. A deficit, a shortage of visible evidence of God's character worked out in my actual behavior will undermine my confidence that I am His. 
It cannot destroy that confidence because it's not the basis of that confidence. It's evidence. But it can weaken that confidence. There's a huge difference between confirming evidence and necessary proof. My imperfect, my imperfect and incomplete conformity to the perfect and complete holiness and righteousness of my Savior and Lord will never be sufficient to prove to me that I am His. When I look at Him and then I look at me, my eyes are never, ever drawn to my godly behavior. They're drawn instead to the infinite gap between my behavior and His character. Every time. But when I fix my eyes only upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, my confidence that I am His is very, very strong. Only the trustworthiness of the one in whom I trust can provide the necessary proof that I am His. I have known that I am His since the day nearly 44 years ago when God in His amazing grace took the blinders off my eyes and introduced me to my glorious Savior. I know whom I have believed Therefore, I know that I am now and forever His. It is confidence in Him alone, Him alone, that keeps me from losing sight of His amazing grace toward the miserable likes of me. If you see any of God's divine nature displayed through this wretched vessel, I can assure you that my only part in that display is as an altogether unworthy and eternally grateful recipient of the true grace of God in Jesus Christ, the one in whom God Himself has made me to trust. If he hadn't, I'd be just as lost and dead as every other unbeliever on the face of this earth. This is how godliness happens in us. Our part in displaying his character is simply faith working through love. Love for him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Love for him who has made us partakers of his divine nature. Love for Him who has showered upon us everything, absolutely everything that we need to show Him off to this lost and dying world. There is nothing in all of this cursed world that can stop a believer whose eyes are fixed upon His glorious Savior from showing Him off. It is in this way that the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to us whose faith, whose life is Christ. Dear Father, I pray that You may impress upon our minds and our hearts and our memories in such a way that we can never lose sight 
that your amazing grace has been given to us in Him. We who believe in Jesus Christ alone as the Savior of mankind and the Savior of me. Father, there may be some here who who do not know Jesus as their Savior. If so, Father, I pray that today would be the day. Today would be their, their version of what You did in my heart 44 years ago. That You would convince them that they are lost and dead in their sins, that they can do absolutely nothing to make themselves acceptable and righteous in Your holy sight. But that Jesus Christ did it all. He paid the entire debt of their sin on the cross when He died. And then He was raised from the dead proving that that payment was perfect. I pray, Father, that they would put their trust entirely in Jesus, turn completely away from any self-reliance and believe in the One who justifies the ungodly. Father, make us to delight in Your grace toward us daily that we may be useful, fruitful vessels in Your hands to spread the kingdom that is coming the kingdom of our glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.